All right, everybody doing all right? No? Cool enough? Yeah, I know, huh? Yeah, some days just work out like that. Okay, so we're going to be in Isaiah 49 tonight, so I want to invite you to open up to Isaiah 49. Exciting chapter. So this is the area of Isaiah where now he's been talking about the servant and Sometimes when he talks about, the first time we talked about the servant, he was talking about Cyrus uh, being the Lord's anointed to deliver the children of Israel out of uh, exile. And then he's been talking about Israel being the servant. And, and so talking about Israel, Israel becoming the Israel that she needs to be. And now the, the focus is really going to turn to how that process happens. Because now... He's going to once again talk about a servant, only now this servant is not Cyrus. And this servant is not Israel. This servant we're going to learn more and more about the closer we get to Isaiah 53. So from 49, moving forward, we start to look at the, the servant of God, the Messiah. And, uh, and then the description uh, of the suffering servant. So we're going to be looking at that tonight as we take a look. And now... I want us to kind of grapple with the idea. How do we know? How do we know that this is the part where the focus changes from Cyrus or the, or the focus changes from the nation? And so we'll talk a little bit about that as we, as we begin. So one of the things that we want to see whenever we see this term servant is when it's attached, when the, when the servant is saying, listen to me, hearken unto me, uh, when, because all of those times, it's never Isaiah. It's never Cyrus. It's never Israel. When someone in Scripture is saying, listen to me, hearken unto me, that's God speaking to us through His Word. So we're going to see two things. His his promise, His covenant, and His comfort. So let's take a look at it. Beginning in 49 verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So... Again, listen to me. This is not Isaiah speaking to Israel. This is the Lord God speaking to who? To the islands. Who's the islands? For the nation of Israel, the islands was like saying the furthest reaches of humanity. Because they didn't have islands in the Middle East. You guys get that, right? So the islands meant you had to travel across the water, which they didn't do. Yeah, until recent times, there's no such thing as an Israeli navy. They walked across the desert. You remember? From Egypt, took them 40 years, wandering around to do an 11-day journey, something like that. So they walked in the desert. They did not get on the water. Paul gets on the water, and what happens? Shipwreck. Gets bit by a snake. All kind of bad things happen every time you, you go out on the water. They were not a water-faring people. So when Scripture says... Listen to me, oh, you islands, coastlands. It's saying the furthest reaches, as far as we can go to mankind. Listen to me. Give attention, you peoples, you goyim, you nations, you Gentiles. He's talking to the whole world. He's not just calling unto Israel. Listen to me, all you peoples. The Lord called me from the womb. So the one speaking, who's saying, listen to me, is the servant. The servant is saying, listen to me, everyone, everywhere, wherever you are, listen to me. 
all the goyim, all you peoples. The Lord, Yahweh, He called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. Now we don't have any of those references for Cyrus. Nor is there any place in Scripture where Cyrus is speaking. It's always God saying, Cyrus is the guy who's going to turn you loose. We never have any place in Scripture where Israel as a nation is speaking through one person. One person who is Israel. We're going to see a little bit of that this time. And then we're going to see this description, this idea that from the body of my mother he named me. He called me from my mother's womb. Yeah, you're right. He did. Genesis 3.15 God, looking at Adam and Eve after the fall, He declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise His heel. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum, first mention of the Gospel. It's the crushing of the head of the serpent, the destruction of Satan, and the wounding of the seed of the woman. Now, last we checked, right, in biology, women don't have seeds. Nowadays, you know, anything's possible. You pick your own gender. Maybe you can pick to be a gender without seed and say, today I have seed. You know, I don't know. But the point is, back when I went to school in biology, you knew seed came from the man, egg comes from the woman. Yes? So when we look at Scripture here in Genesis 3.15, he says the seed of the woman. Now there's something interesting about the birth of Christ, isn't there? That there's no father involved. That the seed is implanted by the Holy Spirit. That, that the Holy Spirit puts the, the infant, the fetus, the, the fertilized egg inside of the womb of Mary. There's no... He just places it there. He overshadows her and she finds herself pregnant. The seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. You called me. From my mother's womb. My father didn't place me there, but the Lord God, he placed me there. In Isaiah 7.14, listen to what Isaiah said. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Everybody remember the scripture? We we see it a lot at Christmas time. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name... Well, how's it go? Emmanuel. Matthew says, which means... Huh, interesting, no? You called me from my my mother's womb. From the body of my mother, you have named me. In Micah 5.2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are so little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. <coughs> From ancient days, from everlasting, King James says, from beyond the vanishing point, he is pre-existent, but he's being born in Bethlehem. It's what scripture declares of the Messiah. Psalm 22.10 says, On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. 
<coughs> we see this incredible, incredible submission of the Son to the Father in the triune God. Uh, it's, it's not overly shocking because Scripture in describing a husband and a wife calls for the, a similar relationship, right? Becomes It's all a picture. It's all illustrating the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Echad, the unity of God. Just like the unity of husband and wife. The Echad of marriage. And the two shall become one. All of these things describing Messiah. <clears throat> describing the idea, right? That Messiah's name before His birth. What did we just read in Isaiah 7.14? Isaiah 7.14 is a long time before Jesus was born, right? You shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means? God with us, right? So you have this naming. Matthew 1.21 talks about the fulfillment of it. Matthew 1.21 at the birth of Christ. We begin to realize as we look at this that this is not Israel the nation. This is Israel, the ultimate, the, the absolute perfect one governed by God. The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. This is speaking of the incarnation of Christ. So what's the weapon? Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. So he's not going to conquer with armies. He's not going to build a military force. He is going to conquer by the power of God's word. He's going to speak. It's pretty mind-boggling when you consider the ministry of Christ in a relatively forsaken part of the world that all he ever did there was teach he never left the 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 nation of Israel so you're talking about a relatively small portion of the world and here we are 2000 years later still talking about it Because he didn't go in the power of the military. He didn't go in the power of conquest. He went in the power of the word of God. When, the, when Revelation describes him as returning and he's fighting against his foes, what does it say? goes out of his mouth. The sword. Sharp, two-edged sword, right? Sharp, two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. This is not something we've never heard of before. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow. And discerning the thoughts and the intent of the heart. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.16, it says, In his right hand he had seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation talks about his return, returning and destroying his enemies with the two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. In Isaiah 11.4 it says this, But with righteousness he will judge the poor, <clears throat> decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will kill the wicked. He doesn't conquer with an army. Even though the Bible describes the <clears throat> bride of Christ coming with him in the air, he doesn't need us. We are not necessary. We don't have to have swords or learn how to use them. Jesus wins the battle. Jesus destroys the wicked. Jesus did the work of salvation. This is what 
Isaiah is describing here. He's letting us know who is this one, what's going on. His mouth is like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So you get the idea. Here's the idea. In the shadow of his hand, it's like God is covering him up until it's time to reveal him. He's covering him up. He's in the shadow of my hand. He made me like a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. God's purpose and plan. Did he, did he tell us about it? Sure. We have pro-evangelicum. We have hints throughout Scripture. But the Scripture says, Paul says, if the, if the rulers of the world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He hid me in his hand. And like that perfect arrow, just the right piece for just the right job, he only brought me out when it was time. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is what Scripture is declaring, and here's what he's describing for us. In verse 3 of Isaiah 49, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You are my servant. We're going to hear this phrase over and over again. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? Who would believe what God is doing? You are my servant. You are the one. For what purpose? Listen, that that phrase, in whom I will be glorified, literally means you will display my beauty. What does it say in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus does? He's going to make seven I am statements that do, that do what for us? That declare who God is. Who, who are you, Lord? I am that I am. That's the name. Yahweh. I am that I am. I am what? Jesus comes. The Gospel of John is built around seven I am statements. He declares who God is. You are my servant. Through you, my beauty will be displayed. In John chapter 1, it says, And we beheld him who is in the bosom of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything we know about the character of God, we want to understand through the life of Jesus Christ. You came to display my beauties. This is the work of the servant. This is what Jesus is doing as Messiah. You are my servant. Remember, Israel means what? What's What's the word Israel mean? To be governed by God. What is it that Jesus says? I only say the things that my father told me to say, right? I've only done the deeds my father gave me to do, right? Who is more governed by God than him? In John 17, he says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. He was headed to the cross, praying his last prayer for his disciples and for those who would come afterward. And he says, I have finished the work. I've done it. Here we go. We're we're marching into the final days. So we have this proclamation that he's making, this display showing the beauty of God. But then it doesn't look like he won. No, verse 4. But I said, okay, this is a servant again speaking. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. We look at it. What do you have? A crucified Savior. Uh, doesn't look like a victory, does it? Doesn't look like a victory to anybody for three days. Ah, oh, it's 
He said, I'm, I've labored. Here we go. But I'm up to the cross. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. But then listen to what he says. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. Jesus at the, at the, at the garden of Gethsemane, he, he makes this declaration. He says, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but, but yours be done. What's he saying? I've come to this place and now I, I am absolutely, I absolutely 100% completely trust you, God. Because what is it that the final words Jesus says from the cross is what? Father, into your hands I commit my ultimate test of trust. No? To let go of, of your existence and trust your existence in the hands of another? Hey, I, I commit my spirit to you. God, you're gonna, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to accomplish your purpose. It says in Hebrews 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect or complete. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. How does He become the source of eternal salvation? He shows us what to do. What do we do? Put all our trust in the Father. Put our trust in the Lord. You are able. He he models the way. He learned obedience. What does that mean? Well, He never had to go through this before. Jesus Christ experiences things as God in the flesh that you and I can't even begin to fathom. We'll spend the rest of our lives wrestling with how that worked. Sitting around round tables discussing how, how is it that God became man? How is it that God could die? How is it that, that, that Jesus was limited? How did all of these things work? And we talk and we argue and we put together theological statements like the hypostatic union and we talk about all of these things but the reality is we don't really understand it because we're not him we're not Yahweh there's only one of those we can't even begin to comprehend what it cost but I know that the word declares that it did cost and that he was willing to pay. He has made a way. We're going to see that develop, that concept developed. So look, he said to me, the father said to me, you're my servant Israel and through you my beauty is going to be revealed. But I said, I've labored in vain. I spent all my strength for nothing in vanity. I'm, I'm dead on the cross. This picture. But I know father knows what he's doing. And my recompense will come from God. And now the Lord says, now Yahweh speaks, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. For what purpose? To bring Yaakov back. To bring Jacob back. That Israel might be gathered to him. Now he's talking about the nation, the return. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, sound familiar? 
and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach, where? To the end of the earth. Remember how we started? Coastlands, islands, farthest places away. Listen, I am become salvation for you. Here, he's declaring the same thing. Now listen to what he's saying. What's he going to do? He's going to restore the people. He's going to restore the people. Now, the people's problem isn't that they don't have the land. And the people's problem is not that they have too much of this or too little of that. The people's problem is they're estranged from God. The nation of Israel is in the exact same place as the Goyim. They're estranged. That's what the exile pictures, right? You've been thrown out. The exile is like getting kicked out of a house. Right? It's not your house no more. You got, you got kicked out. You got booted. You come home and there's a note on the door. You gotta go. They were exiled. It's a picture of the reality that you're estranged from God. Israel didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Israel didn't have a pursuit of the Lord God. They couldn't become what God said because they needed their sins to be purged. They needed them, their lives to be, to be the life of God to be breathed into them. And how is that accomplished? Well, we've just been reading Isaiah 49. How's it accomplished? It's accomplished through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. He's going to purge sins. He's going to make a way. He's going to build a highway so people can see the way to walk. He is going to provide a way for their estrangement from God to end. And not only that, because salvation is not only for the, for the, for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile, right? God says, but not only that, you're going to reach the Gentiles. I will make you a light for the nations, the goyim, for all peoples. That salvation would go out to all peoples. The same way that a, a, a Jew is saved is the same way a Gentile is saved. They're, they're touched by the work of Christ. He makes me a new creation. I don't make myself a new creation, do I? God makes me a new creation. I put my trust in Him. I put my faith in Him. I put my hope in Him. And He becomes salvation to who? All men. All men meaning all men. He is it. Is there another way? Is there a loophole somewhere we can make this work out? That I can become what Israel, the picture of Israel is, a people governed by God. How do I become governed by God? I keep messing that up. I I don't really want to pursue Him. I don't really want to follow Him. I'm struggling with this. I need God to make me a new creation. How does that happen? Sin has broken me from the inside. How, how is the enemy's sin destroyed? How is death taken apart? How does all that stuff happen? That all happens through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He brings victory. He brings <laughs> victory, salvation to all men. So listen in verse 7. So thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One. You have one being speaking. 
It's all singular. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel. Who's the Redeemer of Israel? Well, Yahweh is. Yahweh in the Father or Yahweh the Son? And the Holy One of Israel. You have the concept, Messiah and Yahweh as one being speaking to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. So he's saying now, he's saying this, this sacrifice of this servant, of this Messiah, of the deliverer. Kings will look at him and stand up. Princes will see and, and be astonished. They will fall before him. Why? Because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Here's what he said in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me, Yahweh, every knee will bow. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall... Same thing. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father to display His beauty. The This is inappropriate language, but I don't know another word. So the part of Yahweh that displays the beauty of God that we know and pursue, that's Jesus Christ. The part of Yahweh we struggle to understand, that's Father. He's Spirit. He's everywhere. The comprehension of that is mind-boggling. We want to know who He is. We know who He is. Through Jesus, the Son. He reveals Him to me. He shows me who God is. Well, He's going to rule the earth. This is what He's describing. The kings will see and bow prostrate. They'll fall before Him. Even despite the nation's rejection. rejection. In Isaiah 53.3 it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, hated. Nobody wanted to look at him. There was nothing there that made people go, every time they make a movie of Jesus, he's got to be a pretty guy. But Scripture says there was no form or comeliness that we would desire Him. There was nothing in Him that would draw you to Him. He didn't have blue eyes and a land full of brown. He wasn't blonde-headed. There was nothing in particular that would draw you to Him until He used that which God had asked Him to use. The Word. When He spoke, everything changed. But there was nothing. People turned away from Him. They rejected Him. They didn't want Him. John 1.11 says, He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. 
He's rejected. Yet Isaiah says all the kings are going to bow down before him. Because the day is coming when there will be the return of the king, yes? When the king, the king will come. Everything in us tells us there's a king coming. We keep thinking we're going to find him on earth. We're going to find him. He's going to be born and we're going to find this perfect leader. Nope, he'll come back though. And when he does, we'll know. We will know. He goes on to describe what he's going to do. He's going to release the captives. Listen, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will give, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a promise to the people to establish the land, <clears throat> the apportion, uh, to apportion the desolate heritages, to say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness appear, they shall feed along the way. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. What's God saying? He said, what, here's what I'm going to do through this servant, through Messiah. This is what I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to make a declaration. This is not the last time we're going to see this declaration. I'm going to make a declaration that the year of Jubilee has come. That's what he's talking about. When we read Isaiah 61 and it says he's come to heal the brokenhearted, right? You guys know? To, to bind up the broken, to proclaim liberty to the captives. You guys tracking with me? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. That's the language of Jubilee. Jubilee was that one time a lifetime that God set people free from their bondage. It could be their bondage of debt bondage of slavery, whatever, but once in everyone's lifetime, every 50 years, God will say, I declare Jubilee. This is what Jubilee was picturing. What Jubilee was illustrating was this reality. Paul uses this exact phrase. Listen to how Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 6.2. Paul says, In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Then Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's saying, Isaiah was telling you the day was coming. And I'm telling you, Paul says, I'm telling you, today's the day. The year of Jubilee has been declared. Messiah has paid the price. You can be free. You can be free. You can be let loose. You can come out of the darkness. He's saying, I'm going to feed you on the hills. What's he describing? Sheep. Well, if we're sheep, who's the shepherd? Well, what Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's describing it. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you on all the bare heights. That will be your pasture. He goes on in verse 10. They shall not hunger or thirst. Nor shall there be scorching wind or sun to strike them. For he has pity on them and will lead them by the springs of water. He will guide them. What, what language is he using? He's using the language of a shepherd leading his sheep. At the end of Revelation, he says, To those who have uh, been killed by Antichrist, he says, When they are with me, No more will the sun scorch their face. No more will they cry. 
No more will they struggle because they're with me now. That part, that's all over. He's making the same declaration here. He will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, verse 11, and my highways will be raised up. Well, what is he talking about? He's saying, look, I'm going to make it so you can't miss the way. It's not going to be some tunnel you got to find an opening to. This is going to be an elevated highway. It's up in the sky. You're going to be able to see the way. Jesus said what? I am the way. I am the way. He's saying you're going to be able to see it. This is going to be a pathway. Look, when we see that pathway that God has has laid out for us, when we see that, man, we, we want to say, I cannot miss the path. I can only choose not to walk on it. I can reject the path. But I can't miss the path. Nobody misses the path. That's what Romans 1 is all about. Nobody misses it. They reject it. Or they walk it. But the path has been elevated. It can be seen. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north, from the west. These from the land of of Syene. And then he declares, Sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. How are we afflicted? Ever since the fall, we've been afflicted the same way. He has compassion on His broken. The Lord is near to those who are a broken heart. Yeah, he's, He is there. The affliction is the affliction of sin, of the fall, the brokenness of man. He says, look, I will comfort. I know that this Israel can't become that Israel. I know that that servant can't be like this servant. Because he has something that they don't. But I'm going to make a way. Just like he did in Isaiah 6. Jesus Christ has made a way that your sins can be purged. That you can become a new creation empowered by the Spirit of God to be who God has called you to be. <clears throat> it's not a thing that we make. That we work. It's something that God does. So what does he say? Sing for joy heavens. Exult O earth. <clears throat> Same language that Paul used in Romans chapter 8. He says for the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. All the earth. All of creation is waiting for the day. When the curse will be lifted. And here is what he's describing in Romans 8. This is what he's describing in Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy. He has done it. Then he provides an illustration. <clears throat> but Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Ever felt that way? The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then he asks this question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. And yet, God says, even these might forget. But I will not forget. Why? Look what he said. Because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
I've written your name in the palm of my hand. What's he talking about? I've written your names in the palms of my hand. Your walls, they are continually before me. Your builders make haste and your destroyers who laid you waste are running away from you. God's saying, look, I haven't forgotten you. I'm, I'm working. Trust me. Trust me. Your names are written on the palm of my hand. It has been said that the only man-made thing in heaven will be what? The scars on Jesus. Where are two of those? Hands? What part? Palms? Right here? Maybe. Is that where your name's written? Did he die for you? I have engraved. I just think that's an interesting way to say it. Not I wrote. I engraved. There's a big hole in the middle of my hand where I, every time I see it, I think of you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Hey, when I look at my hands, I think of you. Your protection is always before me. Your walls are always before me. The ones who will build you up are running to you, and the ones who would tear you down are running away. I got you. That's what he's declaring. I have not forgotten you. Then he gives the promise. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them like a bride. Surely <clears throat> your waste and desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too small, too narrow for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Enemies will be long gone and you'll say the land is too small for us. To dwell securely in the place that God has for you. I often think when I look at the book of Revelation of the measurements of the New Jerusalem, the place where the bride of Christ is going to reside. And it's 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs, roughly 144,000 square miles, something roughly like the size of the moon. That's pretty big. That's the place... The one guy I heard speak about it said that it was large enough for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived on earth to have one square mile. Is that enough for you? (laughs) You're going to say, on one hand, Scripture says, man, narrow is the way, right? How many ways are there? Is that narrow? Yeah. Yeah. But also there are places where scripture says so many people are going to come into you. You're going to think we're not big enough. It's not big enough to hold them all. The the promise of salvation going out to the people. They're all going to come to you. He's like he's speaking to the land and he's saying they're all going to come to you. They're all coming to you. Maybe he's speaking to Messiah. They're all coming to you because there's only one way through which men must be saved. There's only one name under heaven. That we must proclaim. 
And that's His name. Look at the prominence of Him. Well, first let's look at the pain. He says in verse 20, The children, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me. Make room for me. The children of your bereavement, the ones you wept over because you lost, they're going to say, Hey, make room. And they will bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, their queens, their nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they will bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. For what purpose? Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will know I am the Lord. So the children of your bereavement will say in your ears, It's too small. And you will say in your heart, Who has brought these to me? I was bereaved and barren and exiled and put away. Where did they come from? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Oh, I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise the signal, and they will bring them all to you. Now, this beautiful picture of the pain is always temporary. It's never permanent. Might last a long time. Our sorrow is just for the evening because joy comes when? In the morning. There will be a day when we see His face and you will not have the pain you have now or the fear, the bereavement, or the sorrow, the anguish. All of that is temporary, it's not eternal. The only thing that is eternal is the salvation that He gives. So He describes this picture of a bereaved parent saying, I've lost my children, they're all gone. When they go into exile, what happens? They lose their children. Who knows what happens to them? Just like the Holocaust. How many times in the Holocaust have you heard of a story of siblings losing one another only when they're in their 90s to find each other again? Separated in the Holocaust and no idea if they lived or died for all those years. It was no different in the exile. So God uses that illustration. He says, you're going to say, how will my children come to me? I've lost them all. And God says, no, you haven't. I'll signal the nations and they'll bring them all to you. The kings will be their foster fathers. The queens will be their nursing mothers. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it all. And one day, one day there will be that perfect reconciliation, that complete (coughs) reconciliation. And you will know I am the Lord. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. Lord, I don't want to wait no more. I've waited long enough. Only those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. Wait, I say, on the Lord. For those who wait on the Lord shall... Oh, you've heard these things before, right? All in the book of Isaiah. Interesting. He says, wait on me. Wait. Trust me. Just like the picture of the suffering servant he just delivered to us in the first half of the chapter. Trust me. In the end, you will see. You will not be put to shame. 
He says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty will be taken. The prey of the tyrant can be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. Trust me. Do you ever have to trust the Lord with your kids? Um, maybe you have to. You will later. Yeah, you may you may have to trust the Lord with your kids when they're three, four, five. When they're twenty, you're going to enter into a whole new place of trusting the Lord with your kids. When they're thirty, when your grandkids are eight, you're going to go through it all again. Might as well learn to trust the Lord with your kids, right? The Lord says, I will save your children. I will save them. They will be delivered and they will be defended. I will contend with those who contend with you. I will contend with those who contend with you. Not your job. Who's going to do it? The Lord's going to do it. And what will happen to the enemies? I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. That, that's not good, right? That seems bad. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as wine, so that all flesh will know, I am the Lord, I am your Savior, I am your Redeemer, I am the Mighty One of Jacob. I am, I am, I am. I'm going to make the oppressor eat their own flesh. There's no way to save yourself. He'll be drunk on his own blood. Right now the Bible says they're drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And in Revelation he declares... The angels declare to the Lord, Just are you, and true are your judgments, O Lord. For they bled the martyrs, and you have given them nothing but blood to drink. Similar things happened in Egypt, didn't they? God says, look, in all the things that happen, when the sands of time have been completed, nobody will have gotten away with anything. And only those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who come to my servant. Those who come to me. The wicked will be judged. And you will know I am Yahweh. I am your Savior. I am your Redeemer. I am the Mighty One of Jacob. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, God. And as we get into more and more descriptions of Messiah and his deliverance of the people, setting them free from the bondage of sin and death. Lord, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our understanding. Make us hungry for you, thirsty for you. Make us like you. Change us from the inside out. Grant unto us repentance from a life full of dead works and give us that hope that only comes from you.
God, I pray that you would work in our midst, work in us and through us, Lord God, as we want to honor and glorify you and give you praise and thanks for what you are accomplishing in and through us. Lord God, we pray that you would be known in this place. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.